Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hello, and welcome to another episode. And this is a special episode. What's it about, Gary? What's it about? Tell the people. Well, we're really stretching ourselves today, Pete. We're looking at the Battle of Islandwana. 1879, January 1879, so a um, long time ago. Well, actually, was it not the 22nd? And is this not the anniversary? I think you're right, Pete. I hadn't thought about that. Oh, I wondered why we were doing it. <laughs> it also depends when the punters actually can be asked to listen to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, if you're listening to it on your anniversary, whether it's rather sad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's true. Right, so uh, so let's let's have a let's have a quick. Uh, we have to do a bit of background, won't we? Uh, before we start, we are emphatically not experts on this. Uh, in fact, we are people who have read a couple of books uh, and have conceived a massive interest in it. Uh, I've been reading uh, Ian Knight's book, Zulu Rising: The Epic Story of Islandwana and Rourke Strift, uh, and Ron Locke and Peter Quantrill's Zulu Victory, and uh, uh, the epic of Esandwana and the cover-up. And you've been reading, uh, you've been reading uh, the Ian Knight as well. Uh, Beano. Beano. Yeah, <laughs> I've been reading the Beano, but in between that, I looked at, uh, uh, it's Osprey's Islandwana 1879, The Great Zulu Victory, which, as you mentioned, is also by Ian Knight. And it's a really good place to start. It's uh, <laughs> It's got very few pages about 120 pages, but it's pictures. It's got pictures. It's got some cracking maps and diagrams, um, but it, it is a very good place to start. It is. So uh, please bear with us. Uh, this is more. A, 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 this is a representation of our enthusiasm for the subject, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, uh, when it comes to the quotes, there there is some offensive language, and the more offensive language we've changed, which uh, is something we don't usually do with a quote, Pete, but uh, we think in this case it's um, entirely appropriate, don't we? Yes, because the original sources are there, and they're in the, the books mentioned, uh, but uh, we're actually broadcasting, so I, I don't think we'll be using uh, that word. Uh, right, so so whose fault was the Zulu War? Who's who, now? There's two people involved, aren't there? There's uh, well, two countries. There's more than there's two British. people. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's the British and the Zulu. So who do you think's to blame, Gary? Uh, let me have a think. Uh, would that be the British, Pete? Ah, British, but we're lovely. Everybody knows that we're lovely. Well. I'm We're not, not so sure. have we? I mean, we we just about got along and coexisted with the uh, the Zulus, the colonial settlers, and uh, 
the Zulus have even given up large tracts of their land to the settlers. So, Which, to be fair, they've taken off other people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're not saying that the Zulus are nice, and we'll come on to uh, the king, Ketchwayo, a bit later and how nice he was. But uh, the British are definitely the aggressive party here. Yes, they'd abandoned big bits of the kingdom. Uh, they'd, uh, they'd, they'd put up with the establishment of the British colony of Natal in 1843. Uh, but the British aren't satisfied, and they, they adopt something called the forward policy. Now, this is a bit like a forward defensive uh, shot in cricket, uh, a game I don't think you're familiar with, Gary, Never except it. that it's not in any way defensive. It's the most aggressive thing you can imagine. And partly designed to capitalise on newly discovered mineral wealth and the opportunities for it. They'd found but that diamonds. was a bit later, wasn't it? That was in the 1870s. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, yes, that's the 1870s. Uh, and who inspires this? Well, they're, they're, there's a couple of baddies we want to talk about. The first one is somebody I think is utterly morally reprehensible. And that's Theophilus Shepstone. Uh, he's secretary for secretary for native affairs in Natal for uh, around about 1870 in the 1870s anyway, and he's very influential on the, the secretary of state for the colonies. Then he, he changes over later, Lord Carnarvon, uh, and they announced that well they they, they announced they're going to form a, a regional confederation in South Africa, uh, expanding British uh, possessions. Uh, and uh, and and uh, seeking control over independent kingdoms, uh, and that would include the Boer republics. There'll be no trouble there, I'm sure. No at all. Uh, and the Zulu nation. Uh, um, this is an aggressive imperial action, isn't it, Gary? Yeah, but why? Why would they want it, Pete? What what possible reason could they want? Uh, could they have for wanting it? Be them diamonds. There be diamonds in them hills. Oh, they've discovered diamonds, have they? Hmm, that'll be it. So, uh, in 1877, Sir Henry Bartle Frere, now this is the other main baddie, uh, I think, it, for instigating the war, is appointed as High Commissioner for South Af Southern Africa. It's not South Africa then, of course, uh, to instigate the scheme. And uh, the first thing they do is they annex the Boer Republic in 1877. The Boers keep moving to try and get away from the British. And we keep following them. And taking them back. How oh, they loved us. I'm sure that the rest of the all time will live in friendship and harmony with the Boers. Um, um, now, that, so that that's happened. And the, the zoo, who's who's in the way now for this? Uh, who who is it who stands in the, the way of the mighty British Empire? Who is it, Gary? Well, it's the Zulu Kingdom, which at that time was ruled by, as I mentioned, King Ketchwayo. You're very good at pronouncing these. You've been rehearsing, haven't you? I've been rehearsing, so, yes. So as normally you can't say plumber or Smith Dorian, and now, now suddenly you can Or electrician. Or electrician is a particularly tasking one. Now, the Zulu kingdom is just under threat, I would say. Uh, King Shetway has got a, a, a variety of problems, hasn't he? Uh, let's go through some. What, what, so, so the first one we've mentioned, uh, British interference uh, in, in their affairs is growing. Based, from Natal, they're, they're, they're just interfering on the southern border sector. Uh, what else? What other problems has he, has he got? Well, we shouldn't forget the, the, the Boers. They were particularly aggressive on his western border and were increasingly a threat. You know, they're, they're, they are as much a threat to him as the Brits, I think. And uh, another thing is that uh, trade. Now, trade can be seen as, as a good thing. 
And a lot of Europeans were trading with the, Zulu, uh, the, the Zulus, selling them things they didn't really need <laughs> in exchange for the cows. Now, what, why, why are cows important to the Zulus? Well, it's essentially the basis of their economic life. Um, they rely entirely on the cow. So they're selling them things they don't need, although some of the things are guns. In yeah, a, in but a, they a, are then taking things <laughs> they do need and rely on. And there's a there's another threat, uh, and 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 th- this still goes on today. We, we one of our friends, hello, Burgie, uh, is still one of these pernicious swine. Uh, there's somebody else in. There's still there's somebody else interfering. Who's that? That'll be based on your description. The uh, Christian missionaries who you just made it offensive from you as well. <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they were there to uh, spread the uh, the word of Christ, or somebody. not as the case may be. But it was it was a threat to the to the Zulu uh, belief systems, wasn't it? I mean, it basically undermined their, their their belief systems. So, how would you describe the Zulus if you were look, looking to say what are they like? Are they nice, friendly, cuddly? I mean, you say they you you you've just said that their their lives are based around their economies based around cattle. Are they a lovely, peace loving farming community? Yeah. Would you say? No, I mean they they're a warrior culture they they're they're structured in uh, in such a way uh, that uh, they they have an army but it acts as a militia so you know most of the time they're they're getting on with their lives but uh, whenever they're threatened that they were called together uh, in these uh, uh, regiments or impies as as they described them and they were usually structured by age so you had all the young men in in one and uh, progressively older uh, units and uh, uh, they they were very 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 aggressive uh, towards not only uh, other um, uh, communities in the area but amongst themselves as well. Chitwayo had killed at least two of his brothers in his fight to succeed his father. Your your brother's a Spurs supporter, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's almost reason enough, but not quite. <laughs> Right, so uh, so so it's a warrior culture. Now, uh, what, so so are they all what are they armed with? That, I mean, well, you mentioned, mentioned they, they did get a few rifles through trade, but their their main weapon was the muskets. Uh, as a lot of them as well. Yeah, actually. their main weapon was the uh, assegai, which was a thrusting spear as opposed to a throwing spear. They had um, uh, the knob carry clubs, which uh, you know it does exactly what it says on the tin. Um, and they also had some throwing spears too. Uh, you mentioned they had a few uh, firearms. To, often they were in terrible condition, uh, and they had makeshift ammunition. They had to make the ammunition themselves in in a lot of cases. And in addition, uh, and this is probably the overriding image of the Zulus from uh, uh, the the films uh, in the seventies. They had the uh, the cowhide shields. Ooh. Uh, would they would they keep bullets back? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think of something witty to say there, and I just thought, no. I think no is pretty witty. Uh, so it's a militia force and called out at times of national danger, or once a year just to have a chat, I think, uh, or a bit of a scrap amongst themselves. They used to not take their uh, their weapons to their meetings, didn't they? And so they just took sticks because they'd inevitably be a huge scrap. And it does sound a little bit like the, the modern army at times. Um, so uh, 
Um, would you say so? It, were this? Would you say they were well organised? I think they were. They were, but because because they're organised in that way, it meant that the logistics was a problem. And and when they did go uh, into the field, they couldn't stay out for long. So they wouldn't have they wouldn't have a, a sort of supply chain and masses of food and supplies. No, uh, they they'd be foraging. Yeah, I mean they moved on foot largely, moved very quickly. Um, and as you mentioned, they would forage and be self-sustaining. But that would mean they needed to to, to get back to their, their bases quite quickly. Now, let's crack on with... Uh, so that's the, the situation. Now, we mentioned that uh, Sir Henry... Uh, well, for, uh, Bartle Frere, he's the High Commissioner for South, Southern Africa. And he, on his own responsibility, issues an ultimatum to Chetouaya on the 11th of December, 1878. Uh, and it, this this ultimatum is is it's just ridiculous. Uh, Shetaway had sent a delegation at the respect at the request of the uh, British, who were acting as an ar- <laughs> neutral arbiters mm. in a t- territorial dispute. Now, actually, the British in there, uh, only the British could do this. They actually came down on the side of the of the Zulus. Zulus. Yes. <laughs> well, the Zulus weren't entirely happy, but they weren't dissatisfied. No, and then and then. They said, uh, oh, can you just hang around a bit? We've, We've got, got something, something else. else. Yeah, something else we'd <laughs> just, like to chat about. And uh, you could just imagine. Now, one thing I want to get in your mind is there is a Game of Thrones element to this, if anyone has ever seen Game of Thrones. Quite often in these meetings between Zulus of various sects, or the British and the Zulus, if you were invited for a chat, you quite often ended up dead. So I can imagine when it said, oh, there's just something else you want to speak to. You just sit over there. Surrounded by armed guards, they must have thought, hello, hello, hello. <laughs> anyway, what it was was this ultimatum. Now, um, this ultimatum is unacceptable. Uh, I want you to think of uh, uh, it hadn't happened yet, but to us, it reminds me of uh, what uh, Austria Hungary gave Serbia in a sense. It's unacceptable. Uh, so let's go through what it is. Well, firstly, uh, the Zulus must surrender two of their local chieftain's uh, sons, whose name I've forgotten, but it's something like Shawaya. Uh, we'll come back Shawaya. to that. Uh, who had been responsible for the murder of two Zulu women. And they'd made the mistake of uh, grabbing them back from over the Natal border, uh, bringing them back to Zululand and cheerfully murdering them. Uh, that's the first thing. Well, that's That's reasonable. That, uh, that's perfectly well, reasonable. It's, it's reasonable ex- murder. Except that they'd murdered them in Zululand and it was none of our business really. But it is, it is reprehensible behaviour. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, that, 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 you know. Also, though, and this is less, this is, they wanted the surrender of people responsible for manhandling some British surveyors who were, for some reason, surveying over the border. Well, that's not reasonable. No. Uh, now, uh, the second, the, and now we come, that, those things are... Uh, you understand why they've there. asked for them. Yeah, but yeah. the next, what's the next thing? Well, <laughs> they all they demand that uh, all Zulu warriors be allowed to marry whenever they wanted, because at the time they required the king's permission, and we're often getting on a bit by the time that was given. Sounds a bit like the British Army and young officers to me. Um, oh, uh, British officers weren't... <laughs> you're looking puzzled. Sorry, I can see Gary on Zoom. British officers weren't allowed to marry without permission of their uh, senior officer uh, in, uh, until relatively recently. I had to ask my officer's permission because I was under 18. Yes. Well, that was a mistake, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. But I still had to get permission. Anyway, 
Uh, there was to be a resident British official located in the Zulu capital. That's not unreasonable. Uh, uh, return of missionaries to Zululand. That, that's not reasonable, is it? Uh, it's none of their business. They don't want missionaries in. Uh, would we allow Zulu missionaries to come to England? No, we wouldn't. Uh, we allow Scots to come in, and they're a bit like missionaries at times. Um, worst of all, what's the worst thing? What, 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 what's the thing that actually makes this impossible to consider? Well, they demand the disbandment of the Zulu army and, and a total end to the system of call-up. Ambusdor! Yeah, now this is fundamental to Zulu society. So they can't accept that. It's it's just totally impossible. And as you said, that has shades of the Austro-Hungarian demand in uh, 1914 of Serbia. It's an element to the demands that the British know full well the Zulus are not going to be able to accept. And in fact, they're already planning. Uh, uh, and when the zoo, when the ultimatum expires in January 1879, Frere orders a chap called Lord Chelmsford to proceed with an invasion of Zululand. The plans have already been made. Uh, the British government, uh, are they kept on board of all this? No, they were neither consulted nor informed, which you know is amazing, really, if you think about that. They thought that they'd swiftly give them a good kicking, their poor old Zulus, and then tell them, the government what they'd done. The British government largely had a good relationship with the Zulu kingdom. Now, uh, so who's the baddies? I think the Zulus are not innocent, are they? But who? we are the baddies. They, they probably were a threat to Natal. They probably were, as perceived by the British. But we are out and out the aggressive force, no doubt. Now, who's this Lord Chelmsford I just mentioned? Who is, who is he? In charge? Who is he? Who, who is, is he? he? He really wanted to be Lord Colchester. Much bigger title and names. Lord Colchester. The whole world would have changed if he'd been Lord Colchester. His real name is Frederick Thessiger. He liked to be called Freddy, uh, I believe. Fine old uh, English name, that. That is a fine old English name, isn't it? Uh, he's born in 1827 and educated at Eton. Uh, there's been many a British disaster educated at Eton. In fact, let, well, let's not go there. He joined the army in 1844. He was a good boxer. He was energetic. He was generally regarded as capable. He was experienced. Where where'd he serve? God, let, he'd, he'd served in the Crimean well, he'd War. He served in the Crimean else? War, but uh, he'd, he'd had very recent experience in the Cape Colonies. So he, he had he'd, he'd, he'd had done 16, 16 years, years in India, I think. Anglo-Indian exp expedition against the Abyssinians, which had been, you know, they'd, they'd got a big army, but they just sort of surrendered. It, it, what was his underlying belief, Gary? What was his underlying belief about facing uh, uh, what, what you might call native, although it's a pejorative term, troops? Well, he, he, he was basically of the belief that... Uh, the massed firepower of relatively small bodies of professional European troops armed with uh, the very capable Martini Henry rifles and artillery and supplemented by local allies and, and levies would basically easily overcome, and if you'll pardon the term, their primitive adversaries. That's from his perspective. That's from every, his perspective. Every society has its own things. I mean, there are many things that are primitive about British society in the 1870s. Uh, now, uh, what's noticeable about Chelmsford's plans? Well, firstly, he's going to have to take offensive action because Chetaweo is not going to do anything. He, he, Chetaweo is desperately trying to keep the peace. 
This is definite. Chetouéa would not allow his troops to cross the border. When they later did at Rourke's Drift, they were in trouble. Yeah, I mean, he, he absolutely understood the threat to his nation. Absolutely. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, now, what else has uh, what else has Shelmsford got in mind? Well, well he underestimates uh, the fight in capabilities of Zulu nation totally, doesn't he? Yeah, and that underlies everything we're going to talk about. He believed they'd try and avoid battle. He based that on, on his experience in the Cape Colonies, uh, the border, the border war there, where they'd run away, and he'd had a series of columns which zigzagged around the colony, uh, try, uh, different columns operating together to, to, to and then trying to catch the uh, the, the, the rebels. Uh, so he believed that they'd try and avoid battle. Uh, he feared... He feared that the Zulus would attack Natal, even though, I mean, he, he's not shut as well, so he doesn't know what's going on. He feared that, didn't he? It's not he? unreasonable to fear that, to be honest. And overall, he planned to drive, to chase the Zulus around, drive them into a corner and force them into a, a pitch battle. <laughs> it makes you laugh when you think what he was aiming for. He got it all right. Um, uh, and he settled on five, later reduced to three invading columns. Uh, so it ended up with three columns invading Zululand and two defensive columns, one of which would uh, actually be added to another one. So let's go through them. Uh, number five column, that's Colonel Rowlands. Uh, total strength of 2,278. They were standing on the defensive. Number four column, Colonel Henry Evelyn Wood. Heard of him, Gary? Heard of him. Sponsor of Hague. Uh, total strength about 1,500. They would advance it to north of Zululand. Uh, number one column, Colonel Charles Pearson, about 4,750. They were on the coastal area operations. They would uh, go into the coastal area of, Z of Zululand. And number two column, Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Durnford. Now, we're going to hear a lot of him. He's commanding a predominantly native force, uh, three battalions of the 3rd Regiment uh, Natal Native Contingent, uh, a rocket battery and five troops of Natal Native Horse. He had about a total strength of 3,871. And he originally was to stand on the defensive in Middle Drift in the Thakila River. There'll be a map put up. Uh, he was later, uh, of course, ordered to reinforce the centre column, number three column. Uh, now, who's Durnford? Tell us a bit about Durnford, uh, Gary. Um, he was a bit of a character. He was a, a, a Royal Engineer officer. Um, he couldn't be described as lucky in any sense bit, of the word. Which is a shame because he was a bit of a gambler, wasn't he? He was a bit of a gambler. And in a border clash, he'd been badly wounded and he'd lost the use of his left arm and hand. So he, he was basically one-armed. Uh, and he and he used to wear it across his chest, I think, in a sling, Pete, um, from what you're uh, indicating. Like Napoleon. Yeah, I, well, I think that's the only thing that was like Napoleon. Um, and he'd been closely involved in raising the NNC, and uh, he, he had a, an apparently reciprocated respect for his African soldiers. Yeah, I'm, I'm fully enough, I've now become doubtful. I'm not sure that he raised the NNT or the Natal Native Horse. I get confused about it. I'm going it was to have probably to the horse in. thinking about I, it. I think it was, actually. Uh, so I, I'm, I'll just keep that up in the air, if you see what I mean. Um, he, he certainly did a lot about and his Natal Native Horse were, very, were, in a very short time, well-trained by him. He's a good, I think he was a good officer. Would you say he's eccentric? Yeah, of course he was. But they, he weren't the only one at that time, was he? No. Now, number three, column. this is the main body. And they're under Colonel... Well, they're not, but they're nominally under Colonel, Colonel Richard Glynn. Uh, main centre column, 4,700 men. And who who went with them? 
Well, he's accompanied by Lord Chelmsford, which totally usurps his command role. And um, he's reduced to really mundane duties. Uh, I mean, that's not to say, you know, Chelmsford's not a bad soldier. Um, but, you know, why why is Colonel Glynn there? Uh, I mean, he's basically setting up sentry rotors and put that tent peg in. That kind of thing. Well, that needs to be done. Yeah, if you don't, the tent will fly away in the wind. And, and it, you know, it should be done by colonels. Most of the colonels <laughs> I know should do that. Now, uh, they were assembling at a village called Helpmakar uh, on the Bigsburg Bridge. Um, uh, in all, there's two battalions of the 24th Fort. That's the, the second Warwickshire Regiment. They're not all bloody Welsh. Uh, Natal native contingent. That's about 2,500 African auxiliaries. Uh, who are they really? When we say they're African well, auxiliaries... Well, they're, they're mainly they're... refugee Zulus. I mentioned earlier that uh, Chetway had had... Uh, uh, at least two of his brothers killed. So, so these are disaffected Zulus, really. And, and stretching back, uh, right back to the time of Shaka in, in the 1820s, these guys had uh, various times left Zululand or be killed. Uh, uh, are they are they European style troops? No, no, they haven't got proper uniforms. They're not properly trained at all, and their weapons are they're pretty well the same as the Zulus. Uh, but they Spears. did European officers, though, Pete, didn't they? Yeah, and 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 some European NCOs um, who were characters. What do I mean by characters? <laughs> um, now, uh, and he also... I was going to say, do they have any artillery? Yeah, they had uh, the seven-pounder rifle muzzleloaders, N Battery, 5th, 5th Brigade Royal Artillery. Uh there's something missing. What's missing? What What would I want? We've been studying Douglas Haig. Uh, what What's missing? What What's not there? Cavalry. Yes. Oh, I had to think for a minute there, trying to trick me up. What What does that make them? Well, they can't. They're blind. They They'll be stumbling around. They They have no idea what they're They're moving into. They wouldn't. They had makeshift cavalry. They had the 300 mounted infantry. They had assorted Natal volunteer corps, and they're often only about 20 strong. I mean, and and the Natal mounted police. Now, those names give you an indication of what's going on. There wasn't enough for a proper cavalry recce or screen, and they're not trained in those functions properly. The total uh, of, of of all these men that he, they were deployed was about 17 to 18,000. That. That, that that's that's about right, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, what happens then? Well, number three column moved forward on the 9th of January 1879 to establish a camp at Rourke's Drift, and the war begins with the expiration of the uh, the uh, ultimatum on the 11th of January, and they cross the Buffalo River into Zululand. Now, what happens first, Gary? The first action is an attack on the local chieftain. You mentioned him earlier, Sheo whose sons had been the subject of the demand on the 11th of December. They overwhelmed... They're the ones that, that uh, had murdered the uh, the people. William, yeah. yeah. They overwhelmed a small force that was defending the gorge through the Ngedia Mountains, and uh, they burned a, a, a tribal village. I thought... Now, this is interesting, because Chelmsford... If you read his orders, he's ever so nice. He says you must be nice to you must be nice to your own native troops. Fair enough, which they weren't most of the officers. Uh, but you must be nice to the Zulus as well. You mustn't uh, burn their villages or kill them out of hand. What mm. did they do to the village? They burnt it and killed them out of hand. I mean, there, there were very few Zulus there, um, to be fair. Um, but but even so, it, it it seems a bit of a diversion and and uh, unnecessary. 
Now, as they move forward, they're suffering severe logistical problems. What are these logistical problems? Well, horse and carts can't cope with the ground conditions, so they're using Cape wagon carts. Now, these are big, big buggers. They really are big carts, and they need 18 bullocks. What a load of bullocks. Uh, yeah, a lot of bullocks. Um, uh, and, and they're slow, and they can only work. Hang on. 18 bullocks per wagon? Yep. And they could only work for some four hours a day, and then they had to graze. And 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 they were a bit like you, Gary. If if they didn't rest and eat regularly, they died. Uh, you've obviously been eating. I might regularly. have the opposite problem. <laughs> uh, so they also needed very skillful wagon masters because the the obstacles in their way are difficult. There's rivers, dongas. That's uh, dongas you're going to hear about. It's a gully. Uh, rough ground, marshes, uh, and one of the people attached was a young transport officer. He wasn't in charge, he was assistant transport officer. And who was he? He's your favourite. He's only 20 years old, a little sprig. Who is he? Well, this is Lieutenant Horace Smith Dorian of the 95th Foot. And I have a quote from him here, Pete. He says, It was a great experience for a boy. I found myself alone controlling the convoys along a great stretch of road, supplying equipment purchasing oxen and generally keeping things going. The skillful handling of the teams of 16 oxen, not 18, interestingly, made a great impression on me. The driver who wielded the whip was usually an Afrikander. I presume he means Afrikaner. The oxen were named and when the pull became very heavy were urged forward by name and pistol-like crack of the whip. Such names as Dutchman, German, and Englishman were bestowed on them. And when a wretched animal possessed the last, it seemed to me there was more emphasis in shouting it out and more venom in the lash when applying it. We're loved <laughs> by everyone. Uh, after 20, 20th of January, there were delays caused by rain, and number three column moves forward, and it pitches camp on the forward slope under the east side of the rocky outcrop of, of Islandwana. <gasps> Oh, uh, you'll hear us pronounce Isandwana many different ways, and uh, just bear with us. Um, uh, now, Chelmsford had uh, standing orders. Uh, they were to entrench or form a defensive circle of wagons, uh, a lager, around the camp every night. Uh, so c could you give us the details of the exact uh, nature of the defences set up around the camp, Gary? Well, pretty much none. They didn't even put pickets out around the back of Islandwana Hill. So um, they, they didn't follow the standing orders at all. Now, begs the question, why not? Uh, Overconfidence. Overconfidence. The British disease. Hubris. We're going to thrash them Johnny foreigners. Uh, now, the local Zulus, uh, what's happening? Shetaway's army's mobilised and it's gathering at the capital of Ulundi. Uh, and uh, he's facing three columns, isn't he, coming into his territory at the coast. The middle column, that's uh, 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 Glynn's column, or it is or the Glynn's column, Chelmsford's column, and to the north is Wood. Uh, now, they, they raised the army, uh, they raised some 25,000 men, and they swiftly realised that the middle column, uh, Chelmsford column, is a danger. So they send some, uh, some, some of the, the mobilised troops to go and harass the north, you know, the other two, and he sent a main army of about 25,000 to uh, destroy the, the central column. Uh, and what's his parting words as they go? March slowly, attack at dawn, and eat up the red soldiers. 
But he also told them not to trigger fighting as best they could, which is a strange order. Uh, there were some 12 Zulu regiments or impis. Uh, uh, it, it's quite a thing. Now, I want to just briefly mention some of their customs before they go. And, and the, 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 the first, they prepared their bodies with lots of things, lots of ceremonies. But my favourite is they, they drink a violent purgative and then vomit, force it, it vomit into a, a special pit, a, a giant pit full of vomit. And that's my favourite. And then they dip in little bit twists of material into it uh, and then put it into this uh, sacred knot thing. I- I'm really impressed by this. And it does remember, remind me of being a young student. Does it remind you of being a young student? No, a young soldier. <laughs> we could have done with a vomiting pit, couldn't we? Could have done, yeah. <laughs> now, who's commanding the Zulu army, Gary? <laughs> Thanks for that, Peter. The Zulu army is commanded by... Uh, Nishguayo Kamole and Muvamenguana Kendlela. And uh, these, these, these are clearly, uh, they're, they're good because of what we're going to tell you about. They march in two columns within sight of each other, to, trying to prevent a surprise attack. They're a couple of miles apart, and they're preceded by a screening force of mounted uh, scouts and, and various parties of warriors, two or, two or three, two to four hundred strong. They're, they're, they're basically trying to, they're acting as a proper screen to prevent the main force from being sighted. They, they march 50 miles in five days. How, how far? How, uh, Chelmsford had only gone 10 miles in 10 days uh, because the Zulus aren't taking wagons with them. It's it's the wagons that are slowing them down. 21st of January, the Zulus had got to Nguabeni Valley. And they're concealed there. And it, now this is controversial. They're then meant to be going to attack after the full moon on the 23rd of January. There's various things about this. Uh, and some in, consider they were perfectly happy to attack on the 22nd. I, I, we're not going to get into this because it doesn't matter. We know they did attack on the 22nd for whatever reason. Uh, so we'll leave it at that. On the 21st of January, from the camp, the camp's established by Sandwana, Chelmsford sends out some 120 assorted mounted troops and two companies, the 1st, 3rd and 2nd, 3rd, of the Natal native contingent, overall under Major John Dartnell of the Natal Mounted Police. And they're going, they're going to scout ahead into the Magogo Hills and towards Mangani Falls. Now, that's to the southeast of the camp. Why did he do that, Gary? Well, he believed the Zulus were ready to launch an attack via the Mangani Valley into Natal. Uh, he, he, he was almost obsessed with it. The fear that the, the Zulu army were going to try and dodge past him and get to Natal. And he considered that the way they do that is to, by the Mangani Valley. Is that right? Yeah. It is right. Yeah. Now, uh, now th- this lot, Dartnell's force, had gone out without food and without ammunition. Uh and and they, they 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 skirmish with elements of the Zulu forces, which they thought was the vanguard of the main army, but in actual fact were either just and here again I'm not going to get into the debate were either Zulu forces who were just happened to be there, or it was deliberate they were being deliberately drawn further forward, and it was uh, it was part of a scheme to draw out and split the the British forces so that the main attack could go in. Uh, to split them. So what does Chal- so Dartnell reports that he's facing what he considers to be the main uh, Zulu army. What does Chelmsford do, Gary? Well, after receiving the report, Chelmsford responds that 
dawn on the 22nd of January by marching a substantial force across the southeast to reinforce Dartnell and take on what he imagined to be the main Zulu army. So he took with him five companies of the first 24th foot, four of the end battery guns and most of his mounted auxiliaries. It's a sizable now, force. He never considers that uh, this is a diversion. He doesn't. That doesn't come to his mind, does it? No. Uh, it's whether by accident. I think it was by by design. I think it's too well done to be anything else. To be absolutely honest, but there it is controversial. Now, what does Chelmsford leave behind, Gary? Well, it's it's approximately five companies totaling four hundred and fifty uh, uh, men of the first battalion, twenty fourth foot, and a strong company of hundred and fifty men from the second battalion of the twenty fourth foot. There's seven hundred of the NNC. There's Natal lo- native contingent. There's yep. local uh, mounted irregulars. There's two guns from the N battery. And in total, there's over 1,300 men of the third column were left to defend the camp. And they're all under the command of uh, a brevet lieutenant colonel named Henry Poulaine. Now, he's an interesting chap as well, mainly because we don't know that much about him. He hadn't had a lot of experience, but he seems to have been a sound officer. Uh, now, he also orders Anthony Durnford, Colonel Anthony Durnford's number two column. Now, they've moved to Rourke's Drift and were now being added to the uh, th- number three column. He ordered them to move forward to Isanwana, although he gives them no specific orders and uh, and he doesn't actually give any description at all, mainly because he doesn't think anything's going to happen. Well, Durnford believes he's being called forward to engage with the Zulu army. So his interpretation of what he's being told, and Pauline is told that he's got to defend the camp. So there is some confusion and ambiguity in what what each of the parties believe is their role. And it's uh, neither of their fault, it's Chelmsford's fault. Chelmsford and his staff, who uh, uh, is such as he had, which is very little. Now, um, so, uh, right, so uh, he has mounted cavalry scouts, Pauline, patrolling about seven miles forward from the camp. And at about seven o'clock, they report that groups of Zulus, about 4,000 men, could be seen. You you wanted to make a a particular point about the times, didn't you, Gary? Yeah, all of the times that we give uh, are potentially wrong uh by up anything up to an hour actually and and the timings are estimates i think it's fair to say now we can't go to the details of what goes on now he get, Pauline gets various reports from his scouts his vedettes all through the early morning they all talk talk about movements large and small by various bodies of zulus and uh and and what they think they're either going to attack the camp or they're going to attack the rear of Chelmsford. As Chelmsford goes off to the south uh, east, uh, they're worried that these Zulus, uh, which are to the north of them, uh, are going to move against their rear. Um, Now, about 10.30, Durnford arrives, and he's got his 500 men of the Natal native horse. Uh, And and the first first and second first Natal native contingent, they don't come into it much after this, and a rocket battery. He doesn't overrule Pauline's dispositions, and after lunch, or breakfast, depending on how you perceive it, he uh, moves forward to engage what he considers to be this Zulu force threatening, uh, threatening Chelmsford's rear. Uh, this is, in my view, is perfectly reasonable. Although, 
it also shows the overconfidence. He, too, is overconfident. So he's not entirely blameless of what's happening, but it, it's a reasonable thing for him to do. Did he wait for his uh, ammunition wagons before he went? No, he, di- he didn't, because ammunition wagons get left behind. They're too slow, so he doesn't know. Uh, he's reliant, therefore, as you rightly put on the ammunition for the, uh, the main force. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, the men are carrying, and if he wants any more, he's going to get it from the main camp. Uh, now, Pauline uh, is getting all these reports of large Zulu forces from 8 o'clock on. Uh, and uh, Pauline sent a stupid, bloody message to Chelmsford, uh, which he gets about nine, between 9 and 10. Uh, and, and this message just basically says, oh, we've uh, seen some Zulus. Seen some Zulus, yeah, over there. And, over there. And it's just bloody useless. And Chelmsford's not impressed. He sends 23-year-old Lieutenant Archibald Barclay Milne. He was the Royal Navy representative. They've got some a little force with the with the well, funnily enough with the coastal column, but he's just representing the navy, and he's with Chelmsford. And he goes up a, a big hill called Magogo Hill to to look back at the camp, and and he says this: On reaching the st- summit, I could see the camp. All the cattle had been driven in, in close around the tents. I could see nothing of the enemy on the left. Uh, this chap uh, is actually he'd be Admiral Milne, and he was the one who gets blamed for letting the Gorbun uh, into the you know escape in the Mediterranean and bring Turkey in the war in August 1914. Interested to see him as a young, fresh-faced lad. Uh, anyway, uh, Chelmsford sends a battalion of the NNC, the Natal Native Contingent, under Hamilton Brown. Uh, he's an interesting officer, Maori Brown, but the New Zealanders don't know who he is. <laughs> uh, and he's back to the camp. Uh, too little, too late. Uh, it, it's not good. So let's talk about the battle. So... What's happening? The main Zulu force is discovered about... Between 20 and 25,000 are discovered about 11 o'clock by the men of Lieutenant Charles Raw's troop. Uh, now, they, they, they're they uh, part of uh, Durnford's force. They've gone up to the hills on the left and they discovered the main body. There's various stories about how this happens as to whether they were already attacking or whether the discovery is what causes the attack we don't know. However, the certainty is that they are attacking then. Uh, and uh, the younger men seem to have got out of control. Ian Knight makes a lot of this, uh, and, uh, and Locke and Contrell, uh, two other authors, not so much. Um, one thing is, whether they're surprised or they go to the attack, they do form their traditional fighting formation. Now, can you describe to me that formation? Um, the Zulus attack traditionally uh, in the form of horns and the chest of the buffalo. And one of the uh, the, the aims is to encircle the, uh, the enemy's position, in this case, the British. So one visible horn, which in this case was on the left, and the other hidden by hills circling round, again, in this case, behind his landwana and cutting off any possible retreat. So from the camp, you can see... At first, only the threat to the British right flank, so from the Zulu left horn. Yeah, you can see the Zulu left horn. Now, Pauline disposes all six companies of the 24th into an extended firing line. Now, this is interesting. They're not next to each other. There's actually, and it varies the descriptions of how far, but they're... They're not in. They're not in what we call a traditional British line. There's up to a yard, even two yards between each man. Uh, he's uh, intending to meet them head on, and what's he going to smash it with? Well, the Martini Henry firepower that we mentioned earlier. So, um, 
that they, they, uh, there's about 20 minutes of firing as, as the chest and the right flank approach. Uh, and uh, Pauline pulls his companies, the 24th companies, a little closer to the camp. All through this, it's noticeable that the British are overextended, aren't they, around the camp. They, they should have drawn in, occupied uh, defensive positions, but those defensive positions hadn't been made, so they couldn't. Yeah, they, they didn't have... I was going to say they should have uh, defended the, the lagers, but they didn't have any. Yeah. Now, there's a, a quote here from uh, uh, Lieutenant Horace Smith-Doran, who, who sees the 24th in action in fighting, and he says this. No boy recruits, but war-torn men and fresh from the old colony, where they had carried everything before them. Possessed of a splendid discipline and sure of success, they lay on their positions, making every round tell. Now... Disciplined British Martini Henry volleys. They really pinned down the, 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 the Zulus at times. And, uh, and, 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 and they caused the advance to stall. And there's a great story of a, a, an old uh, Zulu uh, chief um, inspiring his troops and to get them to up again. And then, and then he, he's shot, uh, which is a hard luck for him, I suppose. Now, the left horn of the Zulu French is now moving fast to outflank and envelop the British right. Durnford's men have encountered this and they they're, they're meeting the the, 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 the they're meeting that and the, the Zulu centre and they're well to the east of the camp by this time and they start to fall back. They fire, get off their horses, sorry, fire, get on their horses, go back under the yards, fire, get on their horses, move back, fire, and eventually they occupy a donga, a dried up watercourse, on the British right flank. And they form a bit of a defensive wall here, don't they? Uh, and it's a spirited defence. And this, this is a quote from uh, Malamalu Matebula of the Inga Bamakosi tribe. Uh, uh, sorry, Inga Makosi regiment, sorry. And he says this, I received four bullet wounds on my body. The one on my left leg below the knee dropped me down, but I soon got up. <laughs> the other three were flesh wounds. We fell down by the hundreds, but we still advanced, though we were dying by hundreds. We could not retreat because we'd encircled them. I, with many others, adopted the style of crouching as we advanced in order to avoid the bullets as our shields could not stop them. While crouching, I received a wound on my back. The bullet entered over the shoulder blade and came out lower down. It made a, it only made a flesh wound. All four wounds are still visible. This is a tough bloke. Yeah, what ammunition does the Henry Martini use? It's it's really tiny little two two, isn't it? Point four five, isn't it? Yeah, so massive. <laughs> yeah. Now back back in the camp, there's a civilian interpreter who'd been brought to talk because one of the things that Chelsea was keen on was persuading the different Zulu tribes to join the British because the Zulu tribes could be. Uh, warring amongst themselves and this is james brickell he's watching from the camp he says this they did not come on in lines but evenly distributed this gully they mounted the force held most tenaciously every shot appearing to take effect so much so that a thousand zulus must have lain between the conical hill and the gully they lay just like peppercorns upon the plain the leading Zulus, finding they were being mown down so terribly, threw themselves flat on the ground to wait for others to come up when they jumped up and came on again. Now, the Natal native contingent that Durnford had with him had essentially buggered off. 
They could see what was coming and they'd left. Uh, what he's got with him are the Natal native horse that he's trained himself. Uh, now, now, uh, and they were armed with, 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 with rifles. And this is uh, Jabez Malif of the Edendale troop. Well, this, to be fair, there's only one in ten of the ranks. No. No, no, that's that's the Natal native contingent you're, you're thinking of there. Um, so the the the, uh, the Natal native horse were nearly all armed with uh, with rifles, uh, and Jabez Malif says, "Here we made a long stand, firing incessantly. The colonel rode up and down our line continually, encouraging us all. He was very calm and cheerful, talking and even laughing with us. This is Dornford, of course. Fire, my boys! Well done, my boys!" He cried. <laughs> Some of us did not like him exposing himself so much to the enemy and wanted him to keep behind us but he laughed at us and said all right nonsense sometimes as he passed amongst us one of the men brought him his gun with the old cartridge sticking and he dismounted and taking the gun between his knees because of only having one arm with strength in it he pulled the cartridge out and gave back the gun there were not very many of us because of the way in which we handled but 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 because of the way in which we were handled by our leader we were enough to stop the zulus on that side for a long time we could have carried him off with us safely enough at this time only we knew him too well to try they mean they, they had horses they yeah they could have got away uh, but uh, as we'll fit here they don't this is got there's the element of truth in the fact that him with having one line they often they'd been trained but they weren't trained well enough to unjam a rifle uh, mm, and, and the Martini Henry, when it fired a lot, was liable to uh, to jam. Uh, but it could be easily freed. But you had to know how to do it. Durnford knew. By this time, Durnford's beginning to run short of ammunition. Uh, what did we say? Uh, and uh, he begins to fall back again. And this slightly exposes the British right flank to the Zulu encirclement. I want to make the point here that, of course, if he hadn't been there, then the right flank would have ex been exposed to encirclement anyway. And all the time, the British rear was exposed. So uh, he's not doing anything wrong. Pauline's ordering everyone back towards the camp now. And that's carried out in goodish order by the, the, the regulars. Um, um, but uh, the Natal native contingent, a lot of them were going. Uh, a lot of them were Zulus themselves. They knew exactly what would happen to them. And by the way, when the Zulus caught up with them, that is what happened to them. This is Lieutenant uh, Walter Higginson of the 2nd, 3rd Battalion Natal Native Contingent. What does Walter say? It was with great difficulty we kept our men in their places, for the bullets were dropping amongst us, and everyone that came near made, all made them all jump up and try to run away. The Zulus extended all round the front of the camp, and as they got on the right flank, they made a rush for the camp and drove back the few men that opposed them. When my company saw them come, coming, nothing could stop them. They all jumped up and ran. And though I knocked one man down with my rifle, it was of no use. I then saw the men of the 2nd Battalion NNC running and looking for the 24th men. I saw that they were retreating also, but very slowly. Now, the isolated regular companies, there's lots of little last stands, aren't there? They fall back. They're outnumbered. They're surrounded. The Zulus have got amongst them. They've, got, they've come round the left, but they've also, and this is the real point, isn't it, Gary? They've come round the right. They've come round in two places. One round uh, the, the side, if you like, in front to the north of Isanwana, uh, but more dangerously, they've come right round the back onto the, into the neck between that and Black Lacks Kopje and uh, where the road is to road. <laughs> where the track is to Rorkstrift. Uh, th th 
that it's hopeless situation. Now, there's a lot of story in the film. Zulu Dawn goes bangs on about this endlessly uh, about the ammunition boxes and whether they could or couldn't, whether the quartermaster would let the troops have them. That's just stupid, I think. But whether they could or couldn't be opened with a rifle butt. Now, the story seems to originate about the quartermaster from Lieutenant Smith Dorian, but that's not what he says. And you're going to say what actually he said. I will mention a story which speaks for the coolness and discipline of the regiment. I, having no particular duty to perform in camp, when I saw the whole Zulu army advancing, had collected camp stragglers, such as artillerymen, in charge of spare horses, officers' servants, sick, etc., and had taken them to the ammunition boxes, where we broke them open. That would suggest that they could be broken open as fast as we could, and kept sending the packets to the firing line. When I had been engaged at this for some time, and the 1st 24th had fallen back to where we were, with the Zulus following closely, Bloomfield, the quartermaster of the 2nd 24th, said to me, For heaven's sake, don't take that man, for it belongs to, the, to our battalion. And I replied, Hang it all, you don't want a requisition now, do you? Now, Bloomfield's look at 2nd 24th, they've gone with uh, Chelmsford. He's looking, and Chelmsford's men were short of ammunition. I want to make this clear, Chelmsford had gone off with, just like Durnford, had gone off without his ammunition round. These people are mad. Uh, Anyway, uh, it's not really the, it's more that, I mean, Dorian's telling, Smith Dorian's telling that story to show (laughs) the spirit of the regulars. They don't refuse them. Uh, Anyway, never mind. But that's probably where it comes from, from that It is probably I think so. I think it's where it comes from. But it's not what he means by it. No. Um, it's dealt with in a second, and they could open them. Now, um, the the, 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 the the 24th companies are fighting desperate little separate battles, cut off from each other, surrounded by hordes of Zulus. It's going badly. Now, this is uh, some of the volunteer carboneers. Um, uh, the, the, this is Trooper Wheatland Edwards of the Natal Carboneers. He says this. I was with a fellow named Whitelaw, and the two of us had become isolated. Back to back, we fought like furies with our short rifles and dagger-like bayonets in a great effort to get back to our companions. We were cut off entirely from the ammunition tent, although we could still hear the little pit... Uh, sorry about this. Piccaninny shouting, Munition bass! Munition bass! in a high-pitched voice. That's... Uh, Typical of the time. As a brave little fellow as one could hope to find. Patronising to the end, eh? <laughs> and all the time he handed out cartridges to those who could get near the tent. Brave lad. He must... Uh, I've said brave lad, not... Uh, he must have gone on doing so until he was killed with the others. We had filled our tunics and belts with bullets, but they did not last long, and we were soon reduced to using the butts of our rifles. Every here and there I could see small groups of men selling their lives dearly, using their fists, rifle, butts and daggers to terrible purpose. Now, the, the, if you were mounted, you could escape, couldn't you? Yeah. But most of them fight to the end with Durnford. Uh, the, the, the Durnford's men, a lot of them choose to stay with Durnford. Durnford could have escaped, but he, he stays and fights to the end. He comes right back into the camp. Uh, and fights the end near the road. Uh, and, and one of those killed, uh, you want to make, I'm not sure he was killed at Durnford side. I think he was killed earlier. I've got a, a, a wrong note there. But who's killed at this time? And it's interesting to know in view of who starts this war. Well, I want to, I want to make two points. That, that, that uh, Durnford's body is, is identified later from his ludicrous moustache. He has got a ludicrous moustache. I'll put a picture up. And I want to make, I want to make the point that Captain George Shepstone 
recognise the name, Pete? Shepstone. Shepstone. Yeah, he's uh, he's the son of the man responsible for the invasion of Zululand and uh, the whole bloody business. And he was killed at Durnford's side. I'm not sure he was killed at Durnford's side. As I just said, I don't think he was. Uh, I think uh, you'll find he was, Pete, because it says so in your notes. Yes, those notes are wrong. (laughs) Again. (laughs) Look. I'm not sure where he was killed. The one thing I know is he, he was, was killed. killed. <laughs> now, uh, the, 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 this is almost uh, apoplectic. Well, blimey, there's a word I don't know. Uh, at the height of the battle, there's a solar eclipse right about 1420, round about. 1429. 1429. Oh, approximately. Uh, <laughs> and it, causes, it doesn't make it dark black, but it makes it gloomy. Uh, it's sort of biblical, isn't it? It's doom laden. It's biblical, and it, this is over the height of the battle. And this is from uh, Me- 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 Melo Kazululu, uh, and he's the son of Shuayo, who's the, and this man that you're going to be. You're the murdering swine, by the way. He's one of who the murders, killed, yeah. Who killed that woman? Uh, carry on, Gary. Melo Kazululu. Some Zulus threw a sec- at a guy's at them. <laughs> How can you pronounce Melakazulu right and then get assegais wrong? <laughs> Some Zulus threw assegais at them. Others shot at them, but they did not get close. They avoided the bayonet, for any man who went up to stab a soldier was fixed through the throat or stomach and at once fell. Occasionally, when a soldier was engaged with a Zulu in front with an assegai, another Zulu killed him from behind. There was a tall man who came out of a wagon and made a stout defence, holding up for some time when we thought all the white people had been driven out of camp. He fired in every direction, and so quickly as to drive the Zulus some one way and some another. At first, some of the Zulus took no notice, but at last he commanded our attention by the plucky way in which he fought, and because he had killed so many, he was at last shot. Yes, nice of him to draw attention to himself. They'd have killed him anyway. And I'm going to be a chap called Umhoti. I've lost, uh, I can't remember which, uh, which impi he's from. Uh, and he said this, Umhoti. Just as I reached the tent, I see why you wanted me to do this quote. Just as I reached the tent, a bald-headed man, unarmed, rushed out of one and tried to dodge around it, but was assegied. I then attacked a soldier whose bayonet pierced my shield. And while he was trying to extract it, I stabbed him in the shoulder. He dropped his rifle and seized me around the neck and threw me on the ground under him. My eyes felt as if they were bursting and I almost choked when I succeeded in grasping the spear which was still sticking in his shoulder and forced it into his vitals. And he rolled over, lifeless. Well, it, this is nasty fighting, isn't it? it it's brutal. Now, there's, there's two stories that uh, are often told. Uh, you're going to run through these, aren't there? Yeah, just, just very quickly. I, I think uh, one will lead into the other. So the first one is Captain Reginald Young Husband, and uh, it's reported that he rallies his men near the foot of his Landwana mountain, and he succeeds in holding off the Zulus for some time. Now, when they finally run out of ammunition, it's reported that he went to every man uh, down the line and shook every one of their hands before he drew his sword and led his men on a bayonet charge down the hill. Now, I'm, I'm a little dodgy about this. It was it was slightly halfway up the hill. Uh, it, was, it was at the foot of the, um, what yeah. do you call it, the, the very... Um, th- there's two reasons for I'm, I'm slightly dodgy about this. It's a, it's a great Victorian battle story. 
if you see what I mean. But there is reference in one of the Zulu accounts to, 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 to an officer with a sword charging down. Um, I, I, I think he was a brave man, uh, but one of his company doesn't follow him down. And I like to think of some hardened old regular thinking, sod that for a game of soldiers. Oh, I've just spotted a cave. You lot go down there. What does he do? Well, as you rightly say, he, he makes his way to a small cave at the foot of the hill. And there, and, and by small cave, it's about two or three metres high as an entrance and about the same uh, in depth. It's got some boulders sort of uh, protecting the front. And he enters that and he go, He takes up a position right at the rear in, and he's sort of wedged between rocks at the back. So he's, he's, he's very tightly ensconced. Now, he defends his position for some time and any Zulu... That, that passes in front, he, he shoots, and anyone who enters, he he, um, he bayonets. And, and, and I sat there thinking, why doesn't he just keep quiet? <laughs> you know, he's, he's drawing attention to himself. I tell you, he kills any Zulu that comes near until the Zulus get a bit tired of this, and so they fire a volley into the cave and kill him. Now, a couple of things, you're firing a rifle in a cave, how loud do you think the retort might sound? So he's probably deaf by this time. And, and and I wondered whether the officers, in order to rally the men, had said things like, you know, Chelmsford will be here soon, lads, and that he's firing on the basis that, you know, Lord Chelmsford's going to come and I'll be safe. Because I cannot for the life of me work out why he keeps shooting. Uh, it's a, it's a I, I feel very sorry for that man. Um it must have been a, a frightening, terrible end. And of course, they, 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 his body. I think they found his body down the side of the hill. They found the bullets in the cave. The cave uh, is the, still sorry, there, the, I believe. The, the case. Yep, I'd love to visit that. That's what that, that sort of story makes you want to go to a place it does, and look yeah. at it. And, um, now, um, so this is the end, uh, beautiful friend. As the doors, I believe, said. Um, uh, the fugitives now. We're going to go through this quickly. They 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 tried to escape back to Rourke's Drift. Uh, that's pretty easy. There's a road leading to Rourke's Drift. Uh, they just walk along the road, do they? No. Yeah. What happens to them, Gary? Well, there's no easy escape. They've got to head across the uh, uh, Manzamiana River. They've got to climb over the Mpeti Hill, and then they've got to cross the the swirling torrent of the uh, Mzimyati River because it had rained really heavily recently. And uh, would anybody be trying to stop them? Would there be, by any chance, the right horn? The right horn? I've got a right... Oh, no! <laughs> I've got a right horn! <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, of course. We the, the right horn had now come round into the rear of the camp from behind Islandwana Hill. I can't believe you said that. Anyway, this is another quote from uh, James Brickhill, who was the civilian interpreter we encountered earlier. And he says... Our flight, I shall never forget. No path, no track, boulders everywhere. On we went, born now into some dry torrent bed, now weaving our way amongst the trees of stunted growth, so that unless you made the best use of your eyes, you were in constant danger of colliding against some tree or finding yourself unhorsed at the bottom of some ravine. Interesting again, on horse. Our oh, only was, horse ones, yeah. Yeah. Our way was already strewn with shields, assegais, blankets, hats, clothing of all descriptions, guns, ammunition belts, saddles, which horses had managed to kick off, revolvers and belts, and I don't know what. 
whilst our stampede was composed of mules, with and without pack saddles, oxen, horses in all stages of equipment, and flying men all strangely intermingled, man and beast, apparently all infected with the danger which surrounded us. One riderless horse that ran up alongside me I caught, and gave to a poor soldier who was struggling on foot, but he had scarcely mounted before he was knocked off by a Zulu bullet. So, and they're being pursued by the Zulus of the right wing. Now, some of the right the thing and the reserves had gone off to Rorkstrip. We're not talking about Rorkstrip at all. But these are bit they're, they're pursuing these things. They're not letting anyone live, are they? Uh, now, so so th- that was very gallant. You're a brave man, Brickhill, aren't you? Very brave. Now, yeah. I love Brickhill because Brickhill is staggeringly honest about his motives. Very <laughs> I'll help you as long as it doesn't endanger me. <laughs> yeah, he he was not quite so gallant a little later on he says i came up with poor band sergeant gamble tottering and stumbling about amongst the stones he said for god's sake give us a lift i said my dear fellow it's a case of life and death with me and closing my eyes i put spurs to my horse and bounded ahead that was the last i saw of it (laughs) no i shouldn't laugh because that's somebody dying Uh, the next i came up with also a soldier said well, I'm pumped. I'm done. The Zulus can just come up and stab me if they like and just sat himself quietly on a stone to await his death. <laughs> now, uh, one of those escaped was the transport officer. Uh, so, uh, and this is, uh, and therefore, mounted. And only mounted people. It was uh, Lieutenant Horace Smith therein. And he spread a bit of a rumour. He, he, <laughs> he, he heard and spread that the Zulus had been commanded to ignore civilians in black coats. And because officers, their patrol desk was dark blue he thought or black he thought that was why they escaped but that's not the key thing is the key thing is to be mounted and the officers were so uh, all the imperial officers on foot were killed um uh, the, the all uh, the, hardly any of the tw- uh, only five imperial officers escaped uh, none of the 24th uh, uh, company men now uh, what does uh, smith dorian say He says, I could see the Zulus running in to complete their circle from both flanks, and their leading men had already reached the line of retreat long before I had got there. When I reached the point, I came on the two guns, which must have been sent out of camp before the Zulus charged home. They appeared to me to be upset in a donga and to be surrounded by Zulus. Again, I rode through unheeded and was passed by Lieutenant Coggill of the 24th, wearing a blue patrol jacket and cord breeches and riding a red roan horse. We had just exchanged remarks about the terrible disaster and he passed on towards Rourke's Drift. What an incredible thing to say. We just exchanged remarks. Yeah, a bit of a disaster there. Yeah. Anyway, the, the next thing in front of him, what's that? That's that big Mizamiathi River. I can't pronounce that, but that's that'll do. It's a big river. It, it, yeah, it's big, isn't it? Yeah. It's, well, no, normally it's uh, perfectly fordable, but it's in flood, in spate. Yeah, and Lieutenant uh, Horace Mistorian says, A man in a red coat, badly assegaied in the arm, unable to move. I managed to make a tourniquet with a handkerchief to stop the bleeding and got him halfway down when a shout from behind said, Get on, man! The Zulus are on top of you! I turned round and saw Major Smith, Royal Artillery, who was commanding the section of guns, as white as a sheet and bleeding profusely. And in a second we were surrounded, and assegais accounted for poor Smith, my wounded friend and my horse. With the help of my revolver and a wild jump down the rocks, I found myself in the Buffalo River, which was in flood and 80 yards broad. 
Now, this is enough. He's swept downstream, isn't he? Uh, uh, and, and he's going to drown, isn't he? But what happens? I got hold of his... Of, of his he sees a horse, He sees a horse, he? yeah. He says, I got hold of his tail and he landed me safely on the other bank. But I was too tired to stick to him and get on his back. I got up again and rushed on and was several times knocked over by our mounted... I'm going to use the word natives who would not get out of my way. Then up a tremendous hill with my wet clothes and boots full of water. About 20 Zulus got over the water and followed us up the hill, but I am thankful to say they had not their firearms. Crossing the river, however, the Zulus on the opposite side kept firing at us as we went up the hill and killed several of the natives around me. I was the only white man to be seen until I came to one who had been kicked by his horse and could not mount. I put him on his horse and lent him my knife. He said he would catch me a horse. Directly he was up, he went clean away. <laughs> yes. Not everyone's gallant, are they? Uh, now, there's a bit of a story now. I don't want to make too much of it. The Queen's colour of the 1st 24th was carried off by, had been taken by Lieutenant Tainmouth Melville, uh, who was on horseback. Uh, but he lost it when he was crossing the river. Uh, it was later recovered, uh, many, many we uh, weeks later. And he was helped by Lieutenant Neville Coggill, um, now, they were caught by the Zulus, weren't they, and killed. But there's a bit of a story about what their, their reputation and what happens after the battle. You've, you've, you've looked into this, haven't you? Well, they're, they're eventually uh, uh, given a posthumous Victoria Cross in 1907 uh, because the legend of their gallantry grew. But General Garnet Walsley, who later replaced Chelmsford, introduced a sound note when he said, I don't like the idea of officers escaping on horseback when they're men on foot are being killed, which is harsh. Well, neither of those officers were actually attacked. I mean, one of them was the adjutant and had presumably been told to rescue the colour and get out of it, and, and the other officer wasn't attached to a, a company. So uh, I'm not sure about that. No, it's interesting. They received their VCs roughly 28 years later, and, and it's, it's interesting to note that the VC had not been awarded posthumously at the time of the battle, uh, and it, it wasn't awarded posthumously until the award to a Lieutenant Frederick Roberts, who died in December 1899. Yeah, he was the son of Field Marshal Roberts. That's, that's doubtless, just a coincidence. Just a coincidence, yeah. Now, where's... Sorry, Gary, somebody's missing from this story. Where's Chelmsford? Well, he fails to respond uh, to numerous messages, but I think... The, the, the well, worst... he, disappear, he disappears for about an hour and a half, doesn't he? Yeah, uh, I he think goes... the, the worst failure comes at around half past one when he, he uh, a message from Hamilton Brown's received that says, for God's sake, come back. The camp is surrounded and things, I fear, are going badly. Now, uh, that's the Hamilton Brown. That's Maori Hamilton Brown, who was he was marching back with his Natal native contingent when he sees what's happening. Uh, so... Um, now, when this message is passed on to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Harness, the Royal Artillery, and Major Black of Sector 24th, and they immediately start to march back. Now, I want to make the point that this is too late. It would be too late anyway. But nevertheless, Chelmsford, well, not they, they, these orders are countermanded, and they're told to return to the camp that, that, that Chelmsford's intent on setting up at Mangeni. Uh, it is too late, but it's a bad thing, isn't it? They, they might have been able to save that chap in the cave, Gary. Well, they might have been able to save some of the men. It's doubtful, but they might have been able to. 
Now, at 15.30, about half past three, Chelsea at last becomes convinced of what's happening. It's now way too late. It, they're already all dead. Uh, and uh, a, an officer, Rupert Lonsdale, who's sort of accidentally almost ridden into the camp, uh, rides back and says, uh, says the camp's fallen. And what does Chelsea say? I love, I love the sort of whiny tone. Yeah, he, he says, but I left over 1,000 men to guard the camp. Yes. He gathers his forces together. His forces were scattered and he marches towards the camp. I, I want to make this point. I think, given that he had very little ammunition with him, given that his forces were scattered, if the Zulus hadn't been sort of full of... Well, they'd had terrible casualties, the Zulus. If they had, if they could have slaughtered Chelmsford as well because he camps overnight at Isanwana. Yeah, they march off. Had they turned their attention to Chelmsford uh, before he reached camp, it would have been another disaster, frankly. Now, uh, they don't look at the camp particularly, but one thing that is going on is that they, they, they accuse the Zulus of, uh, of despoiling the bodies. Now, there's two parts to this. One, there's the custom of the Zulus of, uh, of each warrior they come up would stab stab uh, thing to, to wet the spears, uh, wash the spears. But there's a, more, there's a more general point that you want to make about this. This is, there is, this is a, a custom of the Zulus, isn't it? Yeah, they, they have a custom of ripping open the stomach of the dead, but, it, but it's, it's done in order to free the spirits so that they don't haunt the living. Um, I, I mean, it is another horrific image in, in one's mind, but that was their tradition, and, and it was done in order to, to free that spirit. It, uh, it wasn't in some sort of uh, retribution against the British particularly, it was just something they did. They did take souvenirs as well, though. They possibly did. Um, and cer certain parts of the body for use in um, uh, ceremonies. But these are all, I mean, the, the British do this sort of thing as well. Now, of the 1,800-odd British troops and African auxiliaries, and I'm not going to be exact about this, over 1,300 were killed. Only five uh, imperial officers survived. Uh, the Natal native contingent lost some 400 men. Uh, they were regarded as traitors to the Zulus, so they were... They were killed twice, were they? Well, they'd have been killed anyway. Well, if they, they found were, they them, they, they executed them. They executed the chief Gambiama that was caught. The Zulu casualties. Now, these are these are. We don't know, do we? Really? No, these are just uh, very rough estimates. But they're estimated between one and two thousand dead. Yeah, that's it's. And there, there would have been horrific wounds as well. They'd often die, wouldn't they? Now, uh, we've, we've mentioned Rourke's, if we're not going to go into it, that, that was, uh, an, uh, Chetaway ordered them not to cross the border, but a reserve MP attacks Rourke's drift, and that, 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 uh, that, that the defence of Rourke's drift provides a fig leaf for the whole of this, uh, this campaign, uh, this uh, disaster, doesn't it? Uh, and we may well do I mean. a podcast on Rourke's drift in the future. I think we will, but uh, it is actually used to, to sort of go, look over here, look over here, don't look over there, don't look at that Massive disaster there. Look here. But what's the major um, difference at Rourke's Drift? Had they, by any chance, defended the place and, and put up uh, walls and, and, and lagered up and everything? Not lagered, uh, but yes, they they'd put It was a defensive there. position. And they weren't scattered about. We'll come back to that. Now, what else happens? Uh, Pearson's number one column. That's the one by the coast. They end up besieged. Number four column under Evelyn Wood. That halts its advance. But it doesn't end the war. Chelmsford plans had fallen apart. But after thinking that they were, the Zulus were going to attack Natal, which they never intended to, of course, because that's not what they were doing, um, they, eventually the, the, 
the uh, Chelmsford uh, leads the attack and, and they defeat the Zulus in a number of battles, culminating in the Battle of Alundi and the capture of King Chetaweo. Uh, did, uh, did they fight in open formation, one or two yards apart? Did, did they... Did they, no, did never, they, they never again did that in, uh, in linear open formation with the Zulus. It's suicide. Close order formation, such as a square. And did they defend their camps at night? Yes, yeah. they did. Um, now, um, it, after the thing, uh, the, the Zulu nation is fundamentally destroyed. Uh, it's split up into various nations. Uh, the Israeli falls. Gladstone's not interested. The policy of confederation is abandoned. It's all been for nothing in some ways. Uh, the, the Zulus are left in a, a state. Of, they're destroyed as a kingdom. In fact, Shetaway is allowed to return home, but there's no longer an independent Zulu kingdom. Now, we've got to finish. Why do the British lose? Uh, well, you go first, Gary. What's the first reason? Well, although Chelmsford's uh, very energetic and an able field commander, he, he'd failed to locate and understand the movements of the main Zulu army. And he, he was obsessed with the thought that they were attacking towards the Natal border to the southeast. He totally underestimated his enemy, hasn't it? Uh, that's at the root of most of the mistakes made by him by, and the other commanders. Um, what, what, what other reasons? Well, the British commanders lack familiarity with the ground. This is in comparison with their enemies. In other words, although we had scouts and, and, and local people, they didn't know much about it. it, was, it, it so the Zulus knew the ground better. Now, let's come back to the biggest thing. What had Chelsea, Pauline and Dunford all collectively failed to do? They hadn't secured an effective defensive position. The wagons hadn't been formed into lagers. They had no trenches or, or sangers or fortified redoubts or, or anything formed. Uh, the camp later wasn't struck. And the tents actually interfered with the final defensive actions. They, they were getting in the way, although it was Bit probably too late. Too late, late by yeah. then. Uh, in fighting the Zulus, you need an all-round defence. And, and the southern aspect of the camp was completely undefended. You've made that point a number of times. And Chelmsford's standing orders, reflecting his uh, his poor experience on the frontier war, stressed... stressed prior, prior. Sorry, prior. <laughs> uh, stressed open formations, not the close order line or square. And collectively, all of them, for whatever reasons, they, they made decisions that resulted in the camp being undefended. Uh, defended in a, a, an extended perimeter which was far so too they, wide. They, they were spread out too much. They, they, instead of coming back, like at Rourke's Drift, they're all compact. There may be only 150 of them or whatever they were, but they were all together compact. Yeah, there's mutual support at Rourke's Drift. There, there isn't at Isandwana. Now, Chelmsford was responsible for splitting the force in half in the first place. Uh, and I think we've said, I think we're, he's lucky they didn't come on for his half. Um it's an opportunity. It's called defeat in detail. It gives them the opportunity. Uh, why do you think they went for the camp rather than Chelmsford's force? Well, it's more attractive, isn't it? There's uh, uh, there's more booty, for want of a, a better word, and there's more opportunity. And and actually, because of the way the Zulus fought with the right wing going around Islandwana, it was probably more likely of success. Ideal. Now, Durnford, Anthony Durnford, uh, he made a controversial decision, but what do you think about that? It was probably, it was probably the wrong decision, but that's with hindsight. Um, 
but it's understandable in the overall confusion as to where the Zulus were, and it did look as if they were threatening Chelmsford's rear. Yeah, so uh, it was the wrong decision, but... Uh, a but you've man. also got to look at the orders that Chelmsford gave. If he'd given clear orders... When Durnford, you say gave, or didn't give. Or didn't give, but Durnford would have followed the orders. So if the order said, advance to, to Islandwana and support in the defence of the camp, he would have done that. Now, um, another thing, both both people, are, 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 you can understand why. Durnford and Chelsea had failed to take their ammunition carts with them. So they were always going to be short of ammunition. Uh, now, we know why, because it was almost impossible to take the ammunition with them. But that it's still, but, 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 it's still the fact. You're going to be short of ammunition. What about communications? Was that, was that a problem? No, it proved impossible between the various columns and uh, and therefore you couldn't coordinate between the columns. Horses, we've mentioned this before, they're quick, but they're not that quick. Yeah, it took an hour to get back and forwards, an hour each way, longer sometimes. Now, what about the, the Zulus? Because was it all the British's fault then? Uh, were the Zulus just sort of passive bystanders? Because this is often how these battles are presented, as if we had fuck all... Oh. And we had bugger all to do with it. That's <laughs> much better. No, I mean, we, we mentioned, you know, the Zulus proved very capable of uh, an immediate and spontaneous advance on the, on the uh, once they'd been unexpectedly discovered. Uh, you mentioned they were sort of in the wrong order to start with and, and they got hold of the youngsters who were perhaps acting a little bit more impetuously, but they managed to get control and they managed to form up into the buffalo with the two horns and do exactly what they wanted to do. And, and uh, I mean, the, the, the whole tactic, if you look at in, in history, Hannibal at the Battle of Cannae, the Germans in 1914, these are people that this is that it, it's the circling wings and all the horns of the buffalo. It, it, it's a standard attack. Uh, so I think they're leaders. What would you? They're good, aren't they? They're they're capable. They were very capable, and and they grasped the situation on the ground. That's the major issue here. They 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 understood what was happening, and they provided inspirational leadership where it was needed, particularly when, as you mentioned, the men faltered in the face of the heavy rifle fire. And I want to make this last point that the, the, the exploitation of the terrain by the two horns, this is a standard thing. The left horn, visible. Yoo-hoo, here we are. We're threatening your, uh, well, right flank. It's the left horn. Yoo-hoo, look at us. Meanwhile, the right one, sneaking round through the valleys, gets behind this one and suddenly appears right behind them, blocking any possible retreat and swirling into the undefended rear of the camp. I think the Zulu's tactical generalship, their, their, their strange but effective logistics and their fighting prowess, I think it all indicates that it's not just British mistakes, is it? No, the British were beaten, fair and square. Right, well, that, that's it then. Another defeat for the British. We've got to finish. It's been a long one. Uh, but thanks again to the books we've read. So there's Ian Knight's Osprey book, which has been excellent. Ian Knight's Zulu Rising. And Ron Locke and Peter Contral's Zulu Victory, the Epic of Essendon and the cover. I urge you to read all of these. And there are so much more to learn. I'm looking forward to reading and learning more. And, uh, and I'm sure you are, Gary. And accurate notes, Pete. Yes, accurate notes are always a, a good thing. And uh, so, uh, once again, thank you from both of us. Uh, and uh, and uh, just just read about these battles. They're fantastic. It's great. It's, it's not just the Great War and the Second World War, you know. There's lots more military history. Cheers, Pete. Cheers, Gary.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH, or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?